I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. A new book from the distinguished historian Neville Thompson looks at the life of William Lyon Mackenzie King in the context of his personal and professional friendships with both uh, Winston Churchill and Franklin Delano Roosevelt. When uh, the three got together at uh, the height of the Second World War, they weren't the big three, but Professor Thompson makes the eminent case that Canada's Prime Minister was indispensable, as the relationship between Churchill and uh, Roosevelt was necessitated after 1939, and certainly as the United States entered the war after 1941. King knew both men, and he saw up close the personalities and the makeup of each, physically or otherwise. He was a confidant to both, and King's uh, voluminous uh, diaries capture so much that uh, do not appear elsewhere, and as Neville will tell me, might have been lost. I'll ask Professor Thompson about King, his priorities as Prime Minister, how he balanced Canada's loyalty to the Crown in England, and by extension His Majesty's government, headed by Churchill, as well as the geographical proximity to uh, its closest neighbour, the United States. The book is uh, highly readable and engaging. Neville Thompson is Professor Emeritus of History at the University of uh, Western Ontario, where he taught modern British and uh, European history. His previous books include The Anti-Appeasers, Wellington After Waterloo, and Canada and the End of the Imperial Dream. This new book's uh, full title is The Third Man, Churchill, Roosevelt, Mackenzie King, and the Untold Friendships at 1 WW2. It is published by Sutherland House. He joined me from uh, London, Ontario last week. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, Neville Thompson. Professor Thompson, good morning. Good morning, Joe. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's a great pleasure to be with you. Who did um, King no longer? Was it Churchill or was it Roosevelt? Oh, Churchill by a long shot. Uh, Churchill and uh, King first met in Ottawa at Christmas 1900 when uh, Churchill was uh, on a lecture tour of North America speaking about his uh, adventures in the Boer War, and King was uh, just a brand-new civil servant. They were exactly the same age, both born in 1974. So by the time of the Second World War, uh, in 1939, King had known Churchill and vice versa for almost 40 years. Roosevelt, he first met in 1935 when he was re-elected uh, prime minister, and, but also knew him very well, too, because he met with Roosevelt many times between 1935 and 1939. And I, I guess for, for, for context, Churchill was a, a well-known figure. Yes. Um, by 1900, and, and uh, Roosevelt, of course, was governor of um, New York uh, before the presidency, and, yes, and, and right. he'd run for the pre- uh, vice presidency at one yes, point. That's right. So he was a, he was a well-known figure even yeah. before he became uh, president. And, and, and so, what did um, let, let's begin with Churchill because he knew him the longest. What did he think of King? What does he? Sorry. What What did he think of King? Well, they were very much up and down. At the beginning of the uh, 20th century, after 1904, when uh, Churchill became a liberal, they were both young liberals uh, before the First World War, um, so they had that in common. Uh, in the interwar years, they differed on two fundamental issues. One uh, was the uh, status of the dominions within the British Empire. What uh-huh. King wanted was for, for Canada and the others uh, to be equal partners. Uh, Churchill was more, <laughs> wanted more British domination, British rule, so they differed on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, even more fundamentally, uh, they differed on foreign policy in the late 1930s, when Churchill was strongly opposed to the uh, Nazis, uh, to making any deal with them, 
and King, desperate to avoid war only 20 years after the last one, mm-hmm. uh, supported the efforts of peace of Neville Chamberlain, which are now known as appeasement. That mm-hmm. was a very uh, commendable term at the time, not so much now. Sure, sure. And, and how did King turn around when it came to the issue of, of um, uh, the, the Germans? Oh, oh, yeah, he came around to it uh, after the war began, uh, because King realized uh, that it was Germany that was at fault in invading uh, Poland. Churchill, at the beginning of the war, became First Lord of the Admiralty, and King, who'd known him for a long time, uh, but who was desperate to avoid war, became a great admirer of Churchill before he became Prime Minister uh, in the Second World War for two reasons. One was his very inspiring speeches. Uh, I mean, he was clearly the man who was mobilizing morale in the fall of 1939 and the winter of 1940. And the second was, as head of the Admiralty, he was the only person who was really conducting a war. I mean, the British Army wasn't fighting, mm-hmm. the British Air Force wasn't fighting, but the British Navy was fighting. And, so and King uh, admired uh, uh, the way in which Churchill was imaginatively taking this lead in the naval war. But nevertheless, if I can add one more thing, when Churchill became Prime Minister, unexpectedly, in May 1940, uh, King had hesitations, and Roosevelt did too, because they thought he was too much a heavy drinker. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. He he, he was a heavy drinker, but he managed to cope with it, didn't he? Yeah, indeed. King scarcely drank at all. (laughs) You write in the book, I think, that King swore off alcohol, didn't he, during the war? Yes, he Occasionally he would have a drink, uh, King, on a very special occasion during the war. But yeah. Generally speaking, it's worn off. At, uh, what, what were uh, um, King's skills, say, as a leader, as a politician, especially in this time? Because it's a critical time in, in, in history, yeah. um, both at home and, and abroad. Um, did you find him, I mean, he certainly didn't have the rhetorical gifts, say, of, yeah. of Roosevelt or Churchill. I mean, how did he appeal to, to Canadians for so long? Well, I mean, the, 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 there's no way you can make a hero out of King. He was not an outstanding person like uh, Churchill and Roosevelt, but they, of course, were the exceptions. Uh, they had great rhetorical ability, and they also could address huge questions with great imagination. Mm. King was a manager, a very competent manager, running a very large country geographically, very small population, very diverse uh, in uh, cultures and so on. He managed to hold it together very competently. It was never fractured in the Second World War in the same way that it had been in the First World War. And that was a great accomplishment. I mean, it's perhaps a negative way of looking at it, things that didn't happen. But he was a very competent manager. The other thing is that Canada made a huge contribution uh, to the Second World War, which is often not recognized outside the country. And this was due very largely to King. If there had been a different prime minister who had been reluctant or said we can't afford this or we can't do this, it would have been a different thing. But he provided everything that was possible. And Churchill kept saying that over and over again. He couldn't believe how much King provided. So I think you can sum up uh, King in a way as a very competent manager who held together a very diverse uh, society and made a major contribution to the Second World War. There is no doubt that in the Atlantic world, Britain, the United States, and Canada, he was the third 
And, and, and yet, you know, somehow he hasn't got into the historical narrative so far in the way that he should have. How did King foresee um, the Americans' role in, in the war before 1941? Because we forget now that they didn't get into the war until after Pearl Harbor. That's right, till the end of 1941. Well, first of all, King was very disappointed, uh, unrealistically. He thought the, the United States uh, should have got involved in the war uh, because it owed uh, a lot culturally uh, to Britain with the same kind of civilization as he saw it. And so it should, as a moral duty, have gone to war. But, of course, this is impossible because there were many people in the United States who did not want to go into another European war uh, like the one that they had entered uh, in 1917. So in that sense, he was disappointed in the United States. On the other hand, uh, he was greatly admiring and constantly uh, uh, encouraging the United States to do everything short of war, mm. uh, to provide uh, the means of war to Britain, to patrol the Atlantic, uh, and so on. So, so, so in that sense, he encouraged the United States as much as it could do before it was forced into war by the Japanese. Right, right. Um, what I found interesting are the, the personal relations between King and, and Roosevelt, King and Churchill. Yeah. Um, on the level of, of um, multilateral diplomacy between leaders, how important is it that the personal relations be good? Well, <laughs> it's certainly better than that they be bad. <laughs> <laughs> but in this case, they were exceptionally good, partly because, well, no, largely because, King had known Churchill, and he'd known Roosevelt long before the war. Uh, so, so he had something to build on. He knew Churchill better than Roosevelt did before 1942, or Churchill knew Roosevelt. And so he was the intermediary, and they appealed to him all the time when they wanted to get a message, say, from Churchill to Roosevelt, or from Roosevelt back uh, to Churchill. And so on. They appealed to King because they knew and had confidence in him, and they knew that he knew the other person. So it, it was very important, personal diplomacy, especially between 1939 and 1941. You can make a case that after 1942 it wasn't perhaps uh, so important, but it still smoothed the relationships of these three countries uh, that they, they knew and liked each other so much. And, and King and uh, Eleanor Roosevelt got along uh, quite well, didn't they? I, they I, did. I went to Val Kill a few years ago, yeah. and um, I saw King's photo in her living room. And it was, uh, you know, as a Canadian, you, know, you felt kind of proud to see that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Roosevelt, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, mm -hmm. uh, was a social worker, a social reformer, and King liked to see himself as that, too. Uh, King talked a good line about social reform, but in fact he was very slow and cautious about it. But still he had this in common with Eleanor Roosevelt. He believed uh, that the uh, lot of the ordinary people should be improved. He was also agreed with Eleanor Roosevelt that voluntary actions made a big difference. I mean, mm. he was always skeptical about state intervention in society, but he was never hesitant about private charity, private work, and so on. He had worked in uh, uh, working-class uh, uh, homes of before 1900, as Alan Roosevelt had, and so on. They were both social reformers, so they got along very well. Yeah, yeah. Well, we get a sense uh, from your book, Neville, about um, uh, uh, what 
uh, you know, the, sort of the working relationship between uh, King and Churchill and, and uh, King and Roosevelt, and then later on uh, Churchill and Roosevelt. Uh, you mentioned a moment ago that um, they they confided in King. Um, yeah. In terms of, of what they would tell King about the other person, say, yeah. did, did they know that... that Somehow it would get to the other person, and 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 what were some of the differences? I guess early well, on. Well, maybe I can address the the, the first part of your question uh-huh. uh, first. Uh, they they didn't know that King uh, was going to reveal anything. I mean, King looked like the very model of discretion and so on. They could confide in King, confident that he wasn't going to be uh, babbling this around mm-hmm. and not conveying uh, gossip from one person to the other and so on. He was seen very discreet, buttoned up, and so on. But in fact, what he was doing was recording all this at enormous length in his diary. Uh-huh. I mean, he tells the confidences of Roosevelt and uh, Churchill. He tells how they looked, how they felt, what moods they were in. And so it records this at enormous length in this uh, diary. And it's a miracle, really, that this diary survived, because it was King's intention that it would be destroyed after his memoirs were written either by him or uh, by someone uh, else and so on. Uh-huh. So it could, it could have disappeared. There are records of conversations, meetings with Churchill, Roosevelt, and so on, which are not available anywhere else. They're only in the King Diary. Without the King Diary, all you would have is just a kind of page of minutes or something. Yeah, yeah. You wouldn't have any sense of, of the interrelationship of the two people, uh, their moods, how they were feeling, whether they were trying to uh, influence the other mm-hmm. or what. You wouldn't have that without the diary. I'm sorry I missed the second part of the question. You'll have to repeat it. Sure, yeah. No, in terms of um, the the, uh, the differences that, that Churchill and Roosevelt had early on, um, it, 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 take, for example, how they viewed Stalin. Um, did Roosevelt trust uh, Stalin more than, say, Churchill did? That's, that's a very difficult question. I think the answer has to be yes. Uh, Roosevelt had his hesitations about Stalin, uh, but he knew that without Stalin, it would be impossible to build uh, a world organization that would keep the peace. What became the United Nations, the, uh-huh. the title only came uh, later. So he, he viewed Stalin op- optimistically, too optimistically, we can see in retrospect. But it has to be said that Churchill did the same thing, too. He put a lot of trust in Stalin. He was more skeptical of Stalin, uh-huh. but he still thought he was a great man. The curious thing is that Churchill thought that Stalin was a moderate within the Soviet government. He thought that it was other people much more belligerent behind him who were pushing him to uh, uh, aggressive things and so on. But on balance, it, it, it has to be said that Roosevelt trusted Stalin more than Churchill. Now, what would have happened if Roosevelt had lived beyond April 1945, uh, say he lived to 1950 and so on, Stalin in the post-war world, is a question that's impossible to answer. Whether he would have trusted him more than Churchill, I don't know. He certainly would have been very disappointed when he found out that Stalin, despite his uh, reassurances and his talk, was in fact not interested in becoming uh, a supporting member of a world organization uh, that would uh, help to keep the peace in the world. He would have been very disappointed, at very least. Uh, 
well, in terms of King's motives through all of this, um, what have you found in terms of, of what he did and how that played to, to say, his constituency in Canada? In terms of how, how his, his work um, with, with the war, yeah. um, how did that play at home? Well, you know, he would, obviously most people supported King. There were no riots and rebellions except uh, some military mutinies against overseas conscription in 19, uh, at the end of 1945. So people supported him, but they didn't uh-huh. see him as a heroic figure. Uh, they saw the great leaders of the war as being Churchill and Roosevelt. Even in the uh, bond campaigns, raising money uh, for the war, these were privately uh, paid for. They were not government uh, things. Right. Uh, it was Churchill and Roosevelt who appeared as the great war leaders, not King. He was, you know, maybe he was supplying the means, but he wasn't leading the war. And indeed, that was the case, uh, King says, and I quote the document in the book which uh, says this in the Second World War. He said, I've given the leadership to Roosevelt and Churchill on condition that when when Canada's interests are involved, they will consult us Mm. first. He saw them as great war leaders. They also had huge staff, huge information uh, resources, which Canada didn't have. In the Second World War, uh, the height of the Second World War, Britain had 9,000 people in Washington, diplomats, military people, trade people, and so on. There's no way Canada could compete with these kind of numbers and expertise. Uh, So King, in a sense, was surrendering it uh, uh, to them. But uh, I come back, he was a confident manager, but Mm -hmm, he, he couldn't be seen as a heroic figure. I mean, when he gave a speech on the radio, it didn't attract the same audience as a speech by Churchill or Roosevelt mm. did. Yeah, yeah. What, um, where did King's loyalties lie? I mean, we, we, um, we would think that they would be, he'd be, be more loyal to, to, say, England because of the crown, but at the same time, you know, the United States is, is Canada's closest neighbor. Um, did he have to, say, be strategic in, in, in how he played the, the yeah. two off with one another, say? He, he, was, he was really balancing off those two. He recognized that the United States and uh, Canada were close, especially economically, during the uh, Second World War. Huge amounts of trade uh, going back and forth. But he was always afraid that uh, that Canada would be sucked into uh, American economic and cultural uh, domination. So he was close to the United States. He lived there. He'd been educated there and so on. But he was kind of trying to hold it at arm's length as best he could. His real loyalties were to Britain, in a sense. He regarded himself as a a proud member of the British Empire. He didn't like the term Commonwealth, uh, but Mm -hmm. he thought that Britain, Canada, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, the other dominions should be equal in status. He could never quite get that, but he was insistent uh, on it and so on. Canada was not going to be a colony. It was going to follow its own policies. If it decided to join Britain, it would do so voluntarily, uh, as Australia, New Zealand, and so on would. Uh, um, and he also regarded the Commonwealth, the British connection, as a counterpart to the United States. Uh, he was strongly of the opinion that if Canada uh, sort of broke away from Britain in a real sense, 
then it would just be open to the United States. And of course, in a sense, that's what happened. He didn't live to see it uh, because he died in 1950. Uh -huh. so, but, 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 so he was balancing off the two. So they were both very important, both uh, close friends, uh, both allies, both needed, uh, and so on. But he was trying to balance them off. What he, what he did believe in was a kind of North Atlantic civilization of Britain, Canada, the United States. Uh, culturally, they had a lot in common and right. so on, but he didn't want to be just sucked into one or the other. It's a delicate balancing act, and so, which couldn't really, we can say in retrospect, uh, after more than half a century, it couldn't be sustained, but he thought it could be. He thought yeah. It. yeah. You know, you mentioned um, King dying in 1950, and of course we know that Roosevelt died before the end of the, uh, the, yeah, uh, the in, war. Uh, yes. Um, and uh, they were both worried about Churchill's drinking it. He outlived them. <laughs> yes, that's right. He did outlive them. Though, though it has to be said, that, I mean, he lived in 90 to 1965. Yeah. But in his last 10 years, he, he, especially in his last five years, he was in very bad uh, shape. Yeah. Yeah. But still, he did outlast them, and he continued to be prime minister until he was 85, which is an astonishing thing. Indeed, indeed, yeah. Um, you've uh, mentioned, Neville, uh, the, uh, the the King Diaries, and it's a fascinating story as to how they survived, because uh, yeah. it would have been lost to, to, to uh, history had had um, King not died, I guess, in 1950. Um, what was, uh, in, in terms of reading King in those diaries, how did he see himself? I mean, are they reliable in, in, in the sense of, of his own part in all of this? Yeah, well, well, any diaries obviously are, list, are, are reflective of the uh, person. You know, King appears as the hero, of course, in the diaries. He's the one who's generally doing uh, the right uh, sort of thing. But there are two observations that are worth making about his diaries, which makes them uh, a very unusual source. Uh, one is that they're so detailed Mm -hmm. uh, contain uh, so much, as I say, that you can't find anywhere else. And the second is that those diaries have never been altered. King never, as he intended, went through them, deleting things uh, that he wanted to throw away. And, so on. and this is very unusual. Uh, most famous diaries uh, have uh, been edited afterwards mm -hmm. and totally transformed. For example, Lord Moran's diaries, the diaries of uh, Churchill's uh, doctor. I mean, he worked on those for years going over them, rewriting them, and so on. It's hard to know whether they are an accurate reflection uh, of what he thought at the time uh, or whether they were reconstituted afterwards. The same thing is true of the famous diaries of Charles Ritchie, uh, the Canadian diplomat. Mm. These were constructed long after the event, uh, probably on the basis of some sketchy diaries, but they were not written in that form at the time. King's diaries are exactly as they were written on that day. Nobody has interfered with them, uh, which makes them a very uh, useful source compared to many other diaries, which you have to, diaries you have to treat with uh, circumspection, but not so much yeah. uh, kings. But on the other hand, as you rightly said a moment ago, uh, they, they are reflective of kings' outlook values, and so on. Not necessarily so. Yeah, yeah. Well, how, how would he go about writing the diaries? I mean, we, we think of a diary as something we do at the end of the day, writing it out longhand. He, yes. had, he had someone typing them up, right? Yes. Uh, until, until 1935, when he became Prime Minister again, uh, they were generally written uh, by hand, and these have now been uh, 
uh, transcribed uh, shortly after his death uh, to uh, typescript. After 1935, he dictated them, uh, which is partly why they're so long, because he used to ramble on yeah, yeah. Uh, to his confidential uh, stenographer, Edouard Andy, who was uh, a sort of bilingual uh, clerk who was seconded to be uh, King's uh, stenographer. Uh, 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 a very confidential one. Occasionally he would dictate uh, to some other people uh, Andy's uh, uh, assistants, but generally it was the Andy who would then take the uh, shorthand notes and transcribe them onto the uh, typewriter. And he was a man of great discretion. He never talked about King and so on. One of the things that I find astonishing was that Andy lived to uh, 1998, and nobody seems to have tracked him down. He lived in Ottawa uh -huh. uh, and, and tried to ask him about King. I, I don't understand that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. What, um, there have been some parts, though, that, that, that have been edited, because right? I think I read in your book that um, parts about the seance were, were burned, for example. But, but yeah. we, we knew about that through Colonel Stacy's book, didn't we? Say the last part of the game. Well, oh, didn't we first uh, read about um, King and seances and 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 uh, yeah. in Colonel Stacy's book? Yeah, the, the the part of King's diaries that were destroyed uh, by the uh, executors in 1977 uh, were the separate diaries uh, that contain accounts of his seances. Mm. Uh, I, why those were destroyed, uh, I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, they were destroyed. But nevertheless, in the main diaries, there's enough evidence about uh, seances and spiritualism uh, and so on, that although the other diaries would be very useful and it's a sure. great loss that they were destroyed, there, there, there's still plenty of evidence about his uh, spiritualism. Uh, but his spiritualism did not interfere with his uh, conduct. His spiritualism uh, sort of confirmed that he was doing the right thing. I mean, he never embarked, for example, on a certain policy and then uh, sort of a spiritual self changed his mind. That never happened. That yeah, never happened. Yeah. Uh, these were just reassurances. Yeah. This was also a period in the early 20th century, uh, first part of the 20th century, when there was a lot of uh, spiritualism. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, Air Marshal doubting uh, the air victor of the uh, Battle of Britain uh, was a spiritualist. Many people were. And nobody thinks any of the worst of them for this. Yeah. Nobody thinks that it seriously interfered uh, with what they were doing. These were reassurances to them. Uh, um, th this past weekend, the, the, the PBS began airing this miniseries called Atlantic Crossing. I don't know if you, you've heard of it. Um, it, it uh, it's about uh, uh, Princess Martha and uh, whatever supposed relationship she had with, with uh, Roosevelt. Um, she, she comes up a couple of times in your book, a few times actually. You know, she's at dinner uh, uh, that King attends, you know, at dinners that King is at. Um, what was the true nature of the relationship with Franklin Roosevelt? Well, it, it almost certainly wasn't a sexual relationship, but it was a very sentimental relationship. Roosevelt loved beautiful women, and so did Mackenzie King. Uh -huh. uh, so, so Roosevelt liked having Princess Martha, who is a very glamorous uh, woman uh, living uh, just outside Washington uh, during the war, coming to events in the White House, uh, uh, going out to have dinner with her. On one occasion, he took King with him to have dinner with uh, Princess Martha. It was a close uh, relationship. He 
had others, of course, uh, uh, but, uh, but th- th- these were just sentimental relationships. He didn't get a lot of uh, a sort of close personal relationship with his wife, Eleanor. They'd almost divorced at the end of the uh, First World War, uh-huh. but it was more than that. I mean, she was a busy person, always running around the country, writing uh, articles in the newspaper almost daily. They led parallel lives. It was a strong political relationship, but it wasn't a very personal and romantic relationship. Uh, So Roosevelt, to some extent, found out with Princess Marta and uh, some other people. McKinley King also did the same thing. What uh, what has it been like, Neville, to to, to write this book? Um, uh, you know, you, you write it at a certain point in your career. You know, um, <laughs> late in my career, I'm 82 years old. <laughs> was it fun to to put together? Say, yeah. I mean, it, it is a, a career's worth of, of research, isn't it? But yeah. to, to sit down and write it, uh, I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. I enjoyed it. I have to tell you, I mean, King's Diary isn't uh, a kind of great work of literature, but it's full of fascinating stuff about all kinds of things. It's a huge national, indeed I would say international, uh, resource for people who want to know about these issues. It's easily available online, and more, more, than, more than that, mm-hmm. you can search it uh, by computer. So if you want to know, for example, about uh, King and Smuts, uh, the Prime Minister of South Africa, you can just type in Smuts and up will come all the entries and so on. Uh, so it, 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 it's an enormously uh, valuable national and international archive, and it deserves to be better known. Yeah, and one of the things yeah. I hope this book will do is bring it not just to the attention of Canadians, but also to the attention of people, particularly in the United States and Britain. There are lots of books, of course, about the Second World War, written by British historians, American historians, who scarcely mention uh, Canada, despite its huge contribution, and scarcely mentioned Mackenzie King. If they if they looked at this uh, material, they would find something of great value to them. Indeed, indeed. Neville, it's been such a pleasure to, to, to speak with you today about your book. Congratulations on it, and continued good luck with it. I appreciate your time today. Well, thank you very much, Joe. It's a great pleasure to speak to you, and thank you very much for this uh, opportunity. The book is called The Third Man, Churchill, Roosevelt, Mackenzie King, and the Untold Friendships at 1WW2. It is uh, published by Sutherland House. Neville Thompson, join me on the line from London, Ontario, in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plato.